Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. In the salon, let's talk about sex, literature, erotica, or just plain porn. Steve Almond, Laura Pritchett, and Joanna Ruoco provide a provocative discussion of sex and literature. Following the salon is an open mic reading of limericks and sex scenes. Sorry to interrupt the sexual healing. Um, my playlist I put together for tonight was amazing, and there was going to be some salt and pepper and stuff. How do you say salt and pepper when you're me? You say salt, salt and pepper. Um, there was going to be some amazing stuff, and I'm really sorry that we didn't get to it. Um, but I, I thank you all for being here. Um, how is Lit Fest going so far? Well, anyway, my name's Andrea, and I'm here to welcome you to the Let's Talk About Sex Salon. So tonight, we have three amazing authors who are going to talk about sex in literature. So I would call them our literary sexperts. Sex pots? Is that better? Um, so... I'm going to introduce them, and I want to say a few things, too, about the fact that their books are on sale back there at Tattered Cover. Did you guys notice Tattered Cover's here? Yeah, gentleman back there. Is that Caleb? Are you Caleb? So Caleb's back there, and his name is with a K. Caleb with a K. Caleb with a K. And he's got lots of books, and we also have um, Steve Allman's books, some of you may not know, Steve, sadly, will be leaving tomorrow. So if you want Steve Allman's books, they're back there as well, and you have to get them today. Because when he leaves, he does this kind of spiteful thing, and he takes his books with him. <laughs> and um, we have little credit card slips and, and various other things for you to use to buy these. And um, Laura Pritchett, oh my God, this is the book to read of the summer, right? Stars Go Blue. Um, and on sale back there. I think you can even get all of these signed if you're, if you're nice. And um, Joanna Rocco. I've always said Ruoco, but I was wrong. It's Rocco. It's horribly wrong. It's Rocco. It's Rocco. Um, okay, so, and it's a diptych. So that, that's relevant for tonight. It's a diptych. And um, I don't, I don't know. It sounded dirty. I don't know. Okay. So I'm going to introduce... I've been embarrassed ever since Steve Almond mentioned he wanted to do this sex stuff. I've been blushing for like 10 months. All right. So I'm going to introduce them. They're going to come up. They're going to talk. And then we're going to have our little Lighthouse Goes Blue reading. And I have the order for the Lighthouse Goes Blue reading. And I've heard a preview. And it's filthy. So, just beware. Okay. So, first up, Steve Almond is the author of 10 books of fiction and nonfiction. And actually, I have a preview copy of the 11th book, which um, is going to be the most provocative of all. It's against football. And, you know, Denver is a tough place to, to sell that. So, we're going to, we're all in. Um, he, his most recent story collection is God Bless America, back there at the Tattered Cover Table. 
Um, I'm going to also, I'm going to skip through a lot of his bio and just say he has had stories in Playboy. Because that feels like, yeah, that feels relevant. Um, we also have Laura Pritchett here. <laughs> um, and her book, Stars Go Blue, just came out. I heard she had an awesome radio interview today. I, she's amazing. I've always admired her. Um, she's also the author of Sky Bridge and Hell's Bottom, Colorado, and like 5,000 other books. Um, and she will be, she's been nominated for push carts. She's also won a bunch of stuff. I mean, come on. If you want to know everything, you, you're going to have to read for a while. She's amazing. And then Joanna Rock, Rocco, who we are losing. <laughs> Can we take that out of the podcast? <laughs> All right. Um, we are losing her, those of you who have known Joanna. And she is the reigning champion of the lighthouse hair contest and she's leaving for wake forest you'll see you guys who aren't laughing at the hair contest thing you'll see she's got amazing hair um she's going to be full-time tenure track she's going to be running wake forest practically um so this is one of our last chances to really get to hear what she has going on she has two historical romances in addition to the diptych she has two historical romances published under her pen name, Alessandra Shabazz. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, these three are amazing. They're going to come up and be really smart and erase your minds of everything I've said, which is great. So come on up, guys. Andrea, I was just giving you a hard time. It's Joanna Rocco. It's fine. <laughs> oh my God, I want to have a pen name. I'm going to be Steve Diptych. <laughs> it's my like romance it. pen name. <laughs> I tried dipstick and it wasn't selling. It was taken. It was taken. So uh, here's what we're going to do with your. How many people have had something to drink? I'm a little discouraged by that. I actually want 100% of people. So this is your opportunity right now. Good. Finish it and go get another. So I promise you, the more you drink, the smarter we're going to sound. Um, so we're just going to talk a little bit uh, initially about our own experiences writing about sexuality and, um, and sex itself. And then uh, we'll probably like be in conversation a little bit, but we're very interested to know what you might want to know. Actually, that's what we're most interested. No, you know what I mean. Like, if you don't ask a question, then we're all going to be robbed of the opportunity to not sit in awkward silence for 45 minutes, which is really what you want out of a sex panel. Just like you wanted that in sex, of course. So I'm going to start things off by uh, reading a manifesto that's in those little erotica books that I made because nobody within their right minds would publish them because they're so filthy. And it's a manifesto called Why Write Smut. It's not the whole thing, but it's portions of it and pretty much gives you a, a primer. Because I've devoted perhaps 80% of my adult waking hours to thinking about sex and it seems dishonest to pretend otherwise in my work. Because I have accumulated over the years such a tremendous surplus of sexual humiliation that it seems stingy of me <laughs> not to re-gift some of it to my readers. <laughs> 
because I happen to agree with Freud's naughtiest disciple, Wilhelm Reich, who argued that a true political revolution would only be possible once sexual repression was overthrown, which pretty much rules out the Tea Party as a true political revolution. <laughs> because, boy, is that a movement that needs to get laid. Because I'm now married with three small children and thus writing about sex often constitutes the closest I get to having sex. Because President Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky did have sexual relations and while I could care less about the big phony scandal that story became, became I am interested in the sweet and deranged version of love that passed between them. Aren't you? I really want to be there in that room. I'd be happy to suck Clinton's dick, frankly. I'm so glad this is on podcast. That is awesome. Show of hands, who's sucking Clinton's dick? All right. Because both my parents are psychoanalysts, and despite, despite, despite what you are all now thinking... Which is basically, wow, you must be a really crazy person. Which is a very interesting thought for you to have, by the way, and something we might want to talk about a bit later in the hour. The one lesson my parents managed to impart as I lay those many afternoons on the analytic couch that was, in fact, the only piece of furniture in our living room is that our libidinal drives are not some bright new user option, but an essential part of our beings, an inborn riot of wants and counter-wants that we can never control entirely. And because as a writer, I'm interested in the loss of control in the danger of forbidden thought and feeling. It strikes me as utterly foolish, just from a practical perspective, not to write about sex. Why skip over the part almost guaranteed to teach you something new about yourself? Because I just really love being able to write off lube as a business expense. <laughs> Because though I watch pornography, usually for about two minutes at a time, and I'm terribly involved with it for about two minutes, I am most often made sad by pornography, not simply because it involves the self-exploitation of people who probably have suffered a good deal of misfortune, and not simply because porn stars can perform in manners that often seem like physiological, geometric, and even gravitational impossibilities, and thus make me feel like the abject sexual nebbish that I am. But because porn stars are being paid most often to simulate pleasure, they drain sex of its most intimate tension, our struggle to permit ourselves pleasure amid shame. And because I believe literature's central purpose is not to pretend that we don't have bodies and their consequent needs, but to make us feel less alone with those needs. And finally, because the Puritans themselves were, don't kid yourselves, total horn dogs who wanted nothing more than to tear off those black robes and suffer a spiritual crisis. And because when I write about sex, I'm writing ultimately about a dream that begins with the Puritans, that we, the people of this violent and troubled kingdom, will at last forgive ourselves the lust that reddens our blood and seek a final remedy in the warm temple of one another's imperfect bodies. Okay? That's why I write smut. <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. 
I'm just going to follow that with this little story. You know, the great thing about having a community such as this is that you get to uh, be uh, part of a conversation. It's like going to dinner with people, and it's such a lively, bright conversation, and you're all adding, and you feel smarter when you leave. And that's a really beautiful thing, and that's, you know, Lighthouse and other groups should be thanked for that. The only problem with that is that sometimes if you're shy like I am and you're you're at the corner of the table and you're starting to formulate something you want to say and it's just you're just getting ready to say it and then somebody says it and they're so bright and they're so brilliant about it and you think dang man that was my chance and so my little story is that I spent a year or two of serious literary study looking at sex scenes from literary writers to see what I didn't want to do, which is often a page break or a chapter break or a um, space break and a complete uh, um, silly uh, decision to ignore what just happened when, we, when we're all wanting to know. Um, so I looked at that. I looked at craft. I looked at what I didn't want to do. I looked at what I did want to do. And um, after, for a book I was writing, and after all this, I started thinking, wow, I really, I know a lot of shit now. I mean, I really have a lot of good examples. I can, I, I know about sex scenes. I've read everything. I'm going to put, I'm going to put it together in a, in an article. I'm going to try to submit it to poets and writers or something to share what I've learned. It was a lot of work. And then uh, Steve Allman's 12-step program to uh, writing sex scenes. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> And I read that, and I was like, well, shit, I don't need to say anything at this dinner conversation. <laughs> he said it better. Um, and I teach from his work all the time with his permission. And it's really a beautiful uh, 12-step program. A little bit from the guy's perspective, but you know that, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. And, uh, and sometimes I add in my own female perspective, sure. as I should. And uh, the thing about sex scenes is that, um, and it's just riffing off what you said, and I don't want to read repeat too much of it but it's our job and our privilege as writers to explore the human condition and Flannery O'Connor I think has, I, she's I don't know I'm gonna not phrase it exactly right but um, to be a better writer is really a refining of the sense of honesty and courage and the braver you can be then the better writer you're gonna be and it's hard to write honestly about sex um, whether it's good or bad or not happening or happening and lousy or happening and you know so-so or happening and really great all of that is really hard to write it's hard to write about an orgasm it's hard to write about a non-orgasm it's hard to do this stuff and so i i think it's our job though and to skip over it is to skip over a huge chunk of humanity and to do so is just uh, a failure it's a it's an ethical failure it's cowardice and so uh it's been my you know, rant for a long time that I'm going to try to keep looking at it and look for authors who are very brave about it um, and be annoyed with writers who I think are, there's some great literary writers who keep, A, either skipping over it or B, winning the um, the worst sex scene writing award, which is, uh, uh, yeah, I hope you all know about that. You can Google it. There's some really great uh, um, um, additions to that by some great authors. And so um, I'm just here to talk about what I've discovered and and to advocate that we do not skip it in our writing. Um, it doesn't need to be there. It should never be there without emotional content. Um, for me, that's porn, and I don't want to write porn. Um, but it furthers the needs of the characters. It furthers their plot lines, their stories, their emotional needs, their psychology. And uh, to skip it is a, is a huge failure. Awesome. Well... I'm here to talk a little bit about 
the romance novel um, or romance novels as a genre, which people often are pointing fingers at when they talk about bad sex writing. I mean, when you start thinking about um, silk sheathed steel, uh, purple headed warriors, uh, (laughs) turgid buds, nubs. That uh-huh. often get laved by hungry mouths, ardent mouths. I mean, all of this stuff. <laughs> Orgasms that sound like psychedelic seizures. Um, there's often uh, <laughs> shimmering stars exploding. Um, things go dark. There's fireworks. Petals rain down. Um, there's there's a lot of imagery and symbolism, and you know the the purple prose that people often. You know when they when they think oh this is cheesy or this is what's kind of like, wrong with sex writing or where things get campy, and I, I, I just that's all true. I mean there are romance novels that that have that kind of writing, um, but romance is um, it's a huge genre and it has many 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 different um, different. Uh, subgenres, many different styles, many different writers trying out all kinds of things. And there's also really excellent, surprising writing in romance novels where really bad sex happens um, or where um, people don't have sex at all. There, there are genres of, of romance novels. They, they focus on courtship. Um, they focus on the intimacy that develops between um, two protagonists, which don't even have to be heterosexual. There are subgenres of romance that have... Um, three-way relationships that depict gay relationships. It's a really, really wide genre. And the distinction that Laura just brought up, which I, th- I think is interesting, between pornography and erotica is that pornography and erotica, and people definitely can contest this if you have alternate ideas, but it seems that pornography and erotica have to do with titillating the, the reader, which is great. All for that. But romance novels are really about... Um, character development and about um, a relationship becoming deeper as a book you know progresses to a happy ending there's always a happy ending that's another thing romance novels kind of potentially get derided for in our cynical 21st century minds it's like and they live happily ever after I don't think so but you know in the romance in the romance novel they do and so in I think the rule of thumb with romance novels and maybe other people will have alternate ideas, but the rule of thumb is that it's not necessarily that you're writing a sex scene. You're writing a scene in which your characters are living, um, having experiences. You're following them honestly. And if they're going to have sex, you follow them there. And they, it, it might not happen. It's, it's not just there, like, oh, here's a sex scene. That's when it's not really interesting. It's like, it has nothing to do with the characters. It's just, you know, it's like a, a manual. Like, we, everyone kind of knows what happens, right, in sex. Like, you're just kind of describing it for the sake of describing it. But when it comes from characters that you're following, I think that's when it's... Um, you know, moving or, you know, you get a sense of what people are, are feeling and the characters are changed, the readers possibly change. Um, and I think that goes for romance novels because it's about plot and character and and it's not the same thing for erotic and pornography, but I think it is similar in, in literary fiction that we could talk about all of these genre distinctions too. And so I basically just wanted to put in a little plug for how many of you read romance novels? I know you're all readers of great literature, but... Yeah, all right. Awesome. 
I recommend it. It's really great summer reading, and there are really excellent romance novelists out there to check out. Um, there's a really wonderful website called um, Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Um, <laughs> it's been around for 10 years. It's absolutely wonderful. It's run by um, Cindy Tan and Sarah Wendell, and they are um, authors and reviewers. And it's like basically like a clearinghouse of... Um, awesome information about like recent scholarship on the romance novel and also reviews of romance novelists latest books so if you're if you want to get started on the romance novel and you're like but I want I want one of those really good ones you can go to that website and you can find out and then you can take your romance novel to the I was gonna say the beach but that's not really appropriate to the to the 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 tarn isn't that the word for an alpine lake you could take them to the tarn and you can you can read them with their mulleted heroes on the cover with pride um so there can be more sex in your summer i'm gonna i'm gonna stop talking (laughs) i'll give a a, an example i think of what joanna's talking about which is that sex in a particular uh story novel even in a memoir it's really about an extension of the character. I remember I was talking with Elizabeth Gilbert. I interviewed her, and I was really captivated by a book, The Signature of All Things, the new novel that came out last year. And, you know, that's a book that does have some really awesome sex scenes, but those sex scenes, she was really struggling with, how do I... I've never written graphic material. And she was telling me that she talked to her friend who was a romance novelist. And the romance novelist sat down with her and said, well... She's saying, I don't know, I'm so inhibited, it's so difficult, what do I do? And the romance novelist said, well, all you should do is think about who your character is and then think about how they would have sex. <laughs> okay? So get, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, in Smilla's Sense of Snow, do you guys know that novel? It's about a powerful female narrator. You know the scene I'm going to make reference to. It's about a, a powerful female. Uh, she's a detective, so she exists in the male world. She's very courageous and brave, and she doesn't obey the sort of strict gender stereotypes. And there's a very shocking moment in the middle of that novel where she's having sex with a man, and the, the, the act that makes it indelible i've been unable to forget it and it's just a brief paragraph is that the way she chooses to have sex with this man is that she inserts her clit into his urethra damn okay it's not the whole of their sex but it's like okay that's a a very radical example but that's what i mean that that is an extension of who she is she's going to break the rules of penetrative sex which is always the man with the shaft of shining whatever okay um (laughs) <laughs> or there's a wonderful scene in David Lodge's novel, uh, I think it's Small World that it's in, uh, where there's a 40-year-old virgin, literally, before the movie came out, and he is about to lose his virginity with this uh, woman who's a nurse. And the way that the scene plays out is so enchanting because she's totally matter-of-fact about it. She's like, okay, here's the deal. Oh, yeah, you know, and she's talking him through the whole thing. Now, yeah, oh, yes, I do like sucking on that. Sucking is a very natural reflex. The baby's root and, you know, da, 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 and he's like, ah! <laughs> But what she's doing is she's a nurse. She's trying to tend to him and bring him into this, well, okay, wet your finger and we're going to look around down there, right? And he's like, oh, my God. It's this sudden acceleration into the, in, into the body and its secrets and its mysteries. And she is there kind of buzz managing his entire experience because that's who she is as a character. She's a nurse, right? That's partly what Elizabeth Gilbert's romance novel writing friend was saying, 
you have to think about who your character is and then think about how they would have sex. And sometimes, in certain ways, the way in which their sexual persona might be quite at odds with the, with the persona they have in other, you know, in other scenes and in other contexts. That's even more exciting because then you're discovering something new about your character. Oh, my gracious, they're very inhibited and doubtful in certain settings, but in a sexual setting, they discover power and cruelty and sadism and whatever else. Wow. Then you're really cooking with gas. So I just want to add something to that because I think what makes a good sex scene, well, you know, there's lots of things that make a good sex scene from a not so good sex scene, but one of them <laughs> is that there's something unusual going up in both your examples. There's something very particular. It's like any type of writing. You have to be specific, but specific that adds to your theme. And so one of the books that gave me a lot of courage was um, Scott Spencer's Endless Love. Anybody read that book? It's a gorgeous book, but it's a coming-of-age book. There are two people really in love. They're very young. And there's a scene in which they're having sex during a, a woman's uh, menstruation, and they're covered in blood. And that takes guts to write, and, and the details of the, of, the of the blood and how it covers their body and so on. But it's thematically important because they are, ter they are so in love that they're tearing each other apart like a savage. I think the... the they said that they're like victims of a savage crime, and that's exactly what they're doing to each other's hearts. Mm. So the thing is, is not to just throw in like, oh, I think I'll write a sex scene and I'll make it unusual by th making it, you know, full of blood. But it has to tie to the theme, the characters, who the characters are, like the nurse. But also, what are you, what are you exploring? And that's the trick. I was just, this is a little bit off the topic, but not so much. I was just asked to judge the AWP First Novel Awards. And the thing that, you know, I'm reading all these manuscripts, you know, fast. I've got so many to read, and I'm trying to give them all credit because I've been in that position before, and I don't want to speed through them, and I want to give every writer his or her due. But the thing that made the books rise right away was some books are exploring something, and some books aren't. And that is the trick. And if you're going to have a sex scene, it has to be exploring something. It has to be about something. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have... Uh, we'll continue to babble, clearly. Yeah, but yeah, are yeah. there questions yeah. that you guys have about your own efforts to... Yep. I have a, a question about implied sex. Can you define like implied <laughs> sex? <laughs> Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, film is so difficult to talk about because there's all kinds of people making commercial decisions about what goes in films. So can we kind of set that to the side? In other words, the reason you don't see more graphic sex in films is a monetary reason. It has nothing to do with the artistic integrity. It's people deciding how to get a particular rating. You know what I mean? Uh, but what's at the heart of your point is that what's really sexy about sex is desire what's really sexy about it is the fantasy that we have and the way it awakens our desire for intimacy and that is why there i think is a clear distinction between pornography and good erotica or just good human writing in which the people happen to be having sex alone or together pornography is about the it's it's sex minus emotion it's sex minus true emotion it's kind of human gymnastics. 
uh, or libidinal gymnastics. And um, I'm interested in, I'm very, uh, Mary Gordon has this amazing conolingus scene, okay, in her novel Spending. And you have one or two details right at the beginning that you know that there's a woman who hasn't had sex for a while and that she is having sex with the guy who knows what he's doing. And the first couple of sentences, so it's already implausible, right? Um, (laughs) There's really only one mention. There's one mention. Do you know this scene, Laura? I don't. You got to find it. It's amazing. Um, There's only one mention of what's happening physically, and that is that she can feel uh, his stubble on the inside of her thighs. And that's all you need to know as a reader. You know they're naked, and you know what he's doing. And the rest of that amazing scene, which is really about her struggle to allow herself to have an orgasm, it feels like a punishment, a hunger. I mean, it really goes deeply into her internal struggle to allow herself that pleasure is all conveyed by the rhythm of the sentences. The rhythm as it's building and then it's broken and then it builds back up again. And you know exactly what's happening physically with this woman's body without a single mention of what he's doing with his, you know, lapping tongue and blah, 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 her engorged thus and such. (laughs) But that's actually really sex that's happening. And it's very powerful to read that passage. And you're like, God damn, I just felt an orgasm. Even though there's not a single mention of genitalia. It can be done if you're really focusing on uh, what's happening psychologically and emotionally. And I think I do think that that um, I really love engorged uh, thus and such. By the way, that as <laughs> a t-shirt amazing. engorged thus and such. <laughs> I think it should be Steve engorged thus and such is perhaps your the pen name. But just that you you don't have to feel this burden to physically describe you know and then you know the man inserted his penis a quarter inch into the vaginal canal and then re- retracted another co- you know that like it doesn't it doesn't that happen. is hot <laughs> yeah especially that. the verb retracted <laughs> Ooh. right is, every, is everyone getting ready to kind of like start Ooh, it's getting hot in here um, it's just that right that you don't necessarily need to to go into that sort of like graphic detail or I mean you can focus on what's going on in somebody's mind what what room where are they are they in a room are they in a where is this taking place what's around them I mean in um, Madame Bovary there's there's not any explicit sex there's a lot of glossy hair there's a lot of ripe fruit by the velvet curtained bed like a boat like the sensual surround Mm -hmm. is everything is so heightened that these very very small moments reverberate and they you know create something it's like that feeling in orgasm through um the language through the the rhythm of the sentences like Mm -hmm. steve was saying through symbolism um or through just one one just well-focused moment stubble on you know, the soft skin of the inner thigh, something like that is going to probably do more than the more sort of like Ikea instructions, kind of like, this is what happens. Because that stuff we know and that stuff isn't rooted in a particular personality or particular experience of Mm -hmm. the world, which is, I think, you know, why people are reading. They want some model of reality. They want some perspectives to be with somebody as they filter their experience and, in that case, their sexual experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just to go back to the question really quickly of implied sex, 
I'd say I'm kind. I mean, this is just my opinion. I'm kind of opposed to it. I mean, it depends on your audience, and it depends on the the point of your book and where the the storyline is going and whether it's necessary. But if you've taken your characters there and you feel the need to have a chapter break so you don't have to write the scene, I don't know. I'm going to go on a limb here and say implied sex. If if sex is happening, don't let it be implied. Go there. Um, unless it's unless you know you have some solid reason why it doesn't belong in the work. Yeah. I can't think of a sexual situation that I've been in that hasn't been interesting. <laughs> Even if it's boring, that itself is interesting and kind of heartbreaking. Do you know what I mean? Stephen Elliott writes really beautifully. There's an amazing... So he's got a book called My Girlfriend Comes to the City and Beats Me Up. And he's into the BDSM community and he writes beautifully about... The many functions that sexuality have in our, you know, has in our lives, not just the pursuit of pleasure and narcissistic reward and so forth, but also the pursuit of punishment and flagellation and expiation and ablution. And, you know, he's got an amazing scene in one of those stories in which uh, the two of them are trying to have sex and actually they're, they're trying to sort of have the prelude to sex, which for him in these stories involves punishment, involves sadism and masochism, but it's not working. And it's actually devastating to read the scene. It's not working. Like she's smacking him and it's just not real. It's not happening. What he's really writing about is a relationship that is, is breaking down. That's being sapped of its honesty and, 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 and emotional availability. Uh, and it's it's heartbreaking, and it is also it, it is the way that in which this particular character has sex in the world. Uh, I agree that there's a lot of insert tab A into slot B descriptions, um, and that's actually not how we have sex. Most of the sex that we have in our lives is actually imagined. I know that I am not alone. Please don't make me feel alone. <laughs> Like almost all, like 95% of the sex that I have had has been alone with myself and my thoughts and whatever else I need. I, I haven't done a statistical breakdown, but I'm sure that it's over 90%. Okay. And that too is a part of sex. I mean, think about Portnoy. Sometimes he's getting it on and with a woman and sometimes it's with liver. Okay. There's a whole variety of... Uh, it is, right? You guys remember that. There's a whole variety of ways in which people are sexual. You can be sexual just walking around and having a sudden transgressive forbidden thought, right? Or a disturbing thought, a scatological thought. Those are, by some definition, sexual, but they also are the thing that make us feel deeply uncomfortable. And that's why I think people tend to skip out on sexuality because it makes them feel uncomfortable to admit that they have those thoughts and feelings. But literature is in the business of reassuring us that we're not alone with all those feelings. I am heartened when I read somebody getting nasty in some way that I'm, ooh, I'm even made a little uncomfortable, by. but I'm comforted that that is happening because I too am that sick in my own private world. But it's not sick. It's, it's not, not sick. sick. I'm That's dying right. to say something. There's such a good... So I'm always advocating that every writer should uh, also study or be, uh, you know, 
in psychology we need to be we are psychologists we need to understand human behavior and if you if you've done writing for a memoir or a fiction you know those sheets you fill out they're actually really useful about what is your character's hair color and eye color and yada yada but then it gets deeper who are their siblings what are they afraid of how do they respond to fear how do they um show love and you get to know your character but one important thing is what's their psychology on sex i think that should be added to all those little you know, you find them in poets and writers and little fill out, you know, fill it, get to know your character sheets. And uh, what's the relationship to sex? And a really great book on that is um, Who's Been Living in Your Dreams, I think it's called. And I forgot the author's name, but she's a psychologist and she looks at sexual fantasy and what turns us on. Is it punishment? Is it pain? And some scientific studies into uh, or some research into why we have the fantasies we do and what goes on in our mind because so much of sex is in our mind and get to know your character's you know sexual psychology uh by becoming well versed in that and um it's just a great book i wanted to throw it out when you were saying that and um just pick up on what both of um both of them were just saying uh lydia yuknovich is a writer and a memoirist and um she has an, an exercise that she has people do with their their characters which sort of goes along with the liver and the you know the psychology, um, which is to have your you have your character um, write sort of a sketch or a scene where your character has a sexual experience, but not with another human, like with um, you know a memory, an object, um, mm-hmm. you know, just how do they express their sexuality when they're not with another person? And that that can that could be sort of just autoerotic. But then what do they need when when they're you know getting turned on alone like what is it that they're that they're navigating in, you know in relationship to and i think it's a kind of fun exercise and might bring you to liver something totally different here's a terrible thing that's in one <laughs> of my liver. books i just hope not liver how about a hot tub the way in which i first had an orgasm this is in one of my books so i feel delighted to share it with you um is I actually didn't fully understand what was happening, but we had a hot tub. We grew up in Northern California. I think it's legit. We had a hot tub. And um, at a certain point, I was out in the hot tub alone with like sort of soccer shorts on. It was maybe 12 or 13. And the jets that were coming in like kind of hit me in a spot. And I think the gentlemen and even the ladies know what kind of spot it would have hit. And I went, ooh, and had a twinge of like, holy moly. And then uh, position myself in a manner that that spot was being hit very consistently by a jet. Now, here's what's interesting. I did not, I mean, I, I understood that I was super crazily turned on, but I didn't really understand what an orgasm was. I had one, but then I had to go pee and I got out of the hot tub and went pee and thought, am I coming? Am I doing this thing called coming? Like, that's how blind I was to the whole thing. And for the first Several months, I mean, this is a terrible thing for my family <laughs> to know about that hot tub. But for like, I, I remember the frisson of like crazy forbidden desire that would happen when <clears throat> my brothers were out and my parents had gone and I didn't go and find a porno mag. I snuck out to the hot tub and it was like, oh, my heart was beating. That was my, that was the object of my desire (laughs) let's not go forward too much on this because it just gets very disturbing (laughs) filling out that like how do you think about sex i just think about hot tubs um but to 
but to the point about uh, thinking about the character psychology, there's an incredibly wrenching scene in the novel Stoner that I read a little bit from in the in the uh, seminar I did, which is the first sex scene between Stoner and his wife, and. Um, we know about her. The description of her is that her upbringing was very, very repressed. And it was, uh, I think the author says it was um, uh, morally prohibited, mo- morally prohibitive and almost entirely sexual in nature. That was what her learning is. And so we know this about her. And what happens in the first scene of their honeymoon when she finally agrees to even try to have sex? She immediately runs to the bathroom and throws up. That's what you mean about that is how that character functions. And it is a sex scene, but it's not a, oh, my God, I'm so turned on. It's, oh, my God, this is heartbreaking. This is somebody who's unable to be sexual because of how they were raised. They didn't have a hot tub. (laughs) Are there questions from the audience? (laughs) I feel like you've given us a little bit too much leash here. And things have gotten very dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. Yeah, you you need hot to tub. Know, yeah hot tubs. You need to know your audience and genre. Um, and but then I, you know, I guess I'm an advocate of pushing the boundaries for what's true, not just to push them, but to have a teenager not feeling any lust just seems absurd. I don't think any teenager in here ever went through teenagerdom without feeling lust. And so I'm a big fan. I read a lot of YA literature, and I have teenagers, and they do too. And um, my daughter Ellie doesn't quite want to read some of my novels because there's some scenes in it. It's not YA, but she she uh, she's read plenty of sex scenes in YA literature, but she doesn't read want to read mine yet because they're a little bit more raw. I mean, they're a little. You're dealing with different considerations with YA you're falling in love or maybe experimenting for the first time and I hope it's done honestly and well but she doesn't want to yet read mine and she self-monitors and I'll never monitor it for her I don't I that's not my parenting style but um when she's ready I hope she'll move into that territory as well so I think it just has to do with being true to your characters YA characters are going to have certain things that they should uh you know that they're going to be dealing with and a 30 year old woman's going to have different things and so on yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that completely, that it would, again, have to do with your characters. And you can tell the difference between trying to exploit your characters and trying to follow them honestly and, you know, ex- explore with them. And I don't know, I've read, I mean, I've read quite a bit of YA fiction where, you know, it, there's like a, you know, like a chaste kiss sort of that's, you know, because I, I would I, I would read YA books for the sex. Like I used to read Christopher Pike. Did you mm-hmm. read Christopher Pike? Kind of nonstop because there'd be like a, there'd be like some party where there was like a really brief, furtive, kind of unpleasant, like sexual moment, and I would be like, oh my god, and we'd all pass it around because it was sort of exciting because there were these teenagers, and it's in the horror genre, so like very bad things would happen to the teenagers. It's like <laughs> so I don't know. There's like a whole other thing going on with sexuality and horror, and then very bad things happen to you, but um. But it seems like not censoring, letting things happen, and letting letting kids read is important because kids are going to read things outside of their. You know, so many adults read YA, and so many kids read adult fiction. It just seems like I don't know the whole the whole notion of genre convention to a certain extent seems like it has to do with 
sort of what gets put on a book after the fact in terms of marketing or like just for shelving ease in a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And some people are really self-consciously thinking about genre when they write, but um, I have friends who've written books that didn't think they were YA, and then their agent or their editor says, oh, this is YA, and it's coming out as YA, or you know, the other way around. And so I think maybe we limit ourselves too quickly as writers. But I mean, it's important to understand the, the I think, interaction of you know genre conventions and reader expectations and to sort of think about that stuff. But maybe it, it's a little limiting as you're writing to immediately be thinking this is this is going to be for you know this is middle grade for girls or something i mean yeah i I don't know really the ya market but there is a real thing that exists which is the limitations of what you can say i mean i had a uh, one of my books candy freak they were so eager for me to take out the word dick I was talking about this particular candy bar that had a ruler on the back. And I said, you know, the universal law of adolescence, male adolescence, if you give a teenage boy a candy bar with a ruler on the back, he will measure his dick. And there was... Uh, I didn't know that. It, now you do. I do. Um, uh, the publisher, within her rights, was saying, please cut this word because we can open up a whole new market in me and my artistic... You know, arrogance was saying, no, 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 but that's what that's how teenage boys think of their genitalia. It's a dick. It's not some other word. It's not a lie. I want to really. So I made the stupid decision to keep that word in there. But my publisher was right from her perspective. You do want a, a particular audience. And I think the 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 way to handle that is to say, well, how can you make sure that the sex happens, but take out the things that are really offensive to the censors? the explicit mention of genitalia because what really what's important is the desire that characters carry into those interactions what happens to them emotionally and psychology uh, psychologically during the act and in the aftermath of the act don't skip over it because the censors don't want just find a way to write about the emotional and psychological experience without the graphic stuff that's going to get the censors to make a stupid and arbitrary decision that's more about the puritanical fucked up parts of american culture than a real honest accounting of characters and 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 people and how they move through the world sexually or just through the world yep um so sex and sexuality being such a fascinating and also contested part of society i feel like writing about sex is a place of possible interruption or intervention um in a you know very patriarchal heteronormative society what are ways that or moments that you've seen that that happens or is there a way that that you think that's encouraged in certain writings mm-hmm. or certain genres or okay yeah All right, I will take that on as part of the patriarchy. Um, Wait a minute, I'll start then. No, okay. I was waiting. Bullshit. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, No. Well, I think more fundamentally, people are just very anxious and neurotic about sexuality at all. And then added on to that is it better be heteronormative, acceptable sexuality. It better be a safe kind of sexuality that we can deal with. Um, and that fits the category of normal and uh, uh, permissible sexuality. That's just kind of bigotry and stuff that uh, America's still trying to work out. I think it's getting better, but it's still fundamentally people are uh, heterosexist as a culture. It's heteronormative and heterosexist. Um, 
One thing I've tried to do, even though I'm right usually from a male perspective, well, actually, I'll read a little scene at the end that was my effort to say sometimes even in the midst of um, these super masculine uh, sexual situation that's all supposedly all about male power, right in the midst of that is oftentimes real forbidden homo, homoerotic and homosexual impulses. I have a long section in this new book about football called The Love Song of Richie Incognito that is all about the way in which sports and football in particular provides a space for men, tough, macho men, to be very intimate with one another physically and psychologically and emotionally and it's going to make people absolutely furious but when you really look at the Richie Incognito he was the football player who bullied that other football player so shamelessly it's a love story the way they text one another and commune with one another is they're deeply involved with one another emotionally and psychologically and the cover story is we're macho football players but the reality is it's much more complicated um And I think people are still working on the idea that even the line between heterosexual and homosexual is pretty absurd. It's really a spectrum. It's not, uh, here's one side, these are your desires, and here's the other side, these are your desires. I think, anyway, that Freud and even the Greeks were right. They were on to something. That those labels of uh, what we are sexually really get imposed on us, and it's much more complicated. And so that's what I'm usually thinking about. Even within a supposedly heterosexual scene, what's happening that's more complicated than that? Right? Yeah, and I just completely agree. And I just want to add, I think it's absolutely contingent upon us as artists and people who care about pushing the conversation forward to being at that dinner table and having a good conversation that isn't rotating around the same stupid stuff, but moving forward is contingent upon us as artists to push those boundaries. And, you know, I've probably failed and tried and failed and tried, but one of my writing exercises that I assign when I teach my sex writing class is imagine someone who is not you. Imagine, you know, if you're straight, imagine gay, or if you're on this side of the spectrum, imagine this, or imagine in the middle, or imagine that you're handicapped in a certain way or imagine you know and force yourself to write from that position because just like with any um, book or character we might fall into a rut of writing what we know and then we're only giving voice to a certain part of that humanity and if we're able to if it's interesting to us I think we need to expand that and um, if you're in a if you're in a group that you feel isn't being representative then it's unfortunately maybe for you really your honor and your burden to get that story out Um and get it into the mainstream. Get people reading about it. Get people to understand what it's like to be there. Um, and if we don't do it, man, I just think right. it's so. It's so. I just I'm on a kick lately. That's so easy. It's so hard to be courageous and brave, and it's so easy to be cowardly. And it's exhausting uh, to keep pushing. But you gotta keep pushing. Yeah, and I just um, I just want to add that um, for. For romance novels, because there are these genre conventions, and because there's there's there are a lot of um, there are a lot of uh, assumptions that get made about romance novel readers and about romance novel writers, and also it's um, romance novels are the best selling books, and the Nora Roberts is the best selling novelist in the world. I mean, she's sold billions of books, and there's been a lot of scholarship um, recently looking at romance novels. Um, 
kind of, uh, you know, are they really regressive and reinscribing, like, essentially this, like, heteronormative love story where it always ends in, you know, the family? And that's, I mean, they, they kind of, they do do that. I mean, that is, that is part of what romance novels do. They have this sort of teleology, and then they end happily, and that's kind of... And then it gets repeated again and again and again, and people have studied romance novels like and their readers sort of looking at their reception sociologically like what is it about these women why do they why do they want to read these repetitive you know books they're all drivel like do they desire their own repression i mean that was like an early sort of mode of looking at the romance novel and there's psychoanalytic criticism there's a lot of feminist criticism but it's something um, that i think about when i write romance novels like this is a this is a it's a really problematic genre in in a lot of ways which is why i think it's also important because it is it it is a type of book that gets it, that sells and gets repeated and repeated and repeated and for romance novelists to think about what those conventions are doing and are there ways that they can be played with or subverted or used against themselves or or ways that you can work with them to to do something that is courageous courageous or new because um i mean maybe it's the difference between repetition and reprise i mean how can you use how can you use tropes slightly differently and so it's something that i think even when you're working within a genre that feels like fairly fixed i mean there is there are certain things that have to happen within that book you can still you can still do something a little bit differently and engage with some of those questions of you know who's getting represented and you know how how is this playing out and what is this larger genre doing culturally and there is a lot of really interesting um criticism that if you're curious about how romance novels are uh playing into this stuff that's happening and there are some websites for that too that i could tell you about later the other thing to think about is if you know you have to as a reader of books consume the stuff that's interesting to you and if the cultural voices are not speaking to your experience, don't buy them. Buy a Cecilia Tan book. You know, buy a book by an artist who's portraying characters and their sexual lives and their inner lives that you respond to, and you know, are, are that somehow resonate with you. Do you see what I mean? It's partly about saying, well, I'm not interested in hearing about. Jonathan Franzen's version of sexuality or Steve Almond's or whoever. I'm going to find the artists who are speaking about the experience and support their art so, you know, so they keep making it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, there's a big... Okay. okay. Sorry. I thought you all that question about young adult... Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, teenagers Okay. sub-teenagers are the most sexual of all of us. Wouldn't it be better if they had a hmm. set of Well, yeah, yeah. But that implies that you have an answer. I mean, there's all kinds. Of, I've read a lot of great YA. I don't think the stuff out there is crap. I've read a lot of great YA books, and um, about, sex. about sex that contain various yeah elements. I, I totally applaud what you're saying, but I think that the larger problem is the kids reading. 
in terms of the way that they are socialized around sexuality, you all know, if you have teenagers, you know especially, they're getting 90-some-odd percent. The average teenager is getting 95% of what they know about sexuality from screens in one way or another, which are even more, I think, reductive and by their nature, less focused on people's inner lives. So, or football teams, absolutely. Or reality TV shows. But, but, yes, but then the larger question is, how do you as parents advocate getting kids to read and then to read books that will talk about their sexuality in a way that they recognize it doesn't talk down to them, doesn't dodge what it's really like to be, have this kind of riot of wants in your body and how to manage those. And that's a, that's a tough thing for a parent to do in this particular time and place. But it was also tough in Salem, Massachusetts. And it was also <laughs> tough in the 1950s. And it's also tough in Iran. We actually, we actually have the freedom, potentially, to try to get our kids to be less sexually anxious, inhibited, you know, to get some of the crap. But it's hard work. Because you have to get them away from the big universe of porn and towards the big, you know, towards the much smaller and more difficult world of honest writing about people's sexual lives their, and their inner lives. That's a tough thing to do. I, I wish think, we could snap our fingers. So I'm not going to do a whole lot of belaboring. First up, I already know this is going to be exciting and quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> said um, I, I really could we take that out of the podcast um, Seth Brady Tucker already has an awesome collection called Mormon Boy is it back there is Mormon Boy back there it's going to be there within minutes and um, he's got a new collection coming out and I think I have it, the title in my head, which is, We Get the Gods We Deserve. We Deserve the Gods We, we, deserve the gods we Ask For. That's right. I'm so glad I didn't workshop your title, because yours is much better. Um, Seth Brady Tucker. First up. All right. Quick and exciting. One of those is probably true. I think my wife would probably agree. One, one of those would be true. Um, it's, it's great that I get to start us off after this long discussion about all the things that are, are uh, correct or are good with sex scenes, and then I'm going to fuck it all up with this first story. Are you all ready? All right. So um, this is called Wimbledon. It sounds like... Nadal and Federer are fucking very slowly in the living room and my coffee is getting cold so I stop with the writing which is really obsessively checking Facebook and Twitter and Goodreads and Gmail and Amazon and Gawker and Flavor Pill and all the university job boards and head to the two step and head the two steps into my tiny living room and find that my girlfriend of 2 years is masturbating quietly on the couch watching Nadal Nadal and Federer at Wimbledon. So in a way, you could say they are fucking. 
And so let's call my girlfriend Hillary is slowly swirling herself in slow beats to the grunting volleys and serves and approaches on the television. And when she sees me, she is startled a bit, but just turns back to the match and keeps right on going without a word. I stand there for a moment, wondering if I should join in, but before I can get my mind re-engaged with what I I am seeing and take appropriate action, she pauses and says, let's call me Mike. Mike, can you give me a minute? Jesus, I just want to finish. And just goes right back to swirling herself slowly to the grunt pock, grunt pock of the match. I go into my narrow kitchen, put a kettle on, and start grinding some beans. Ha. For another cup of coffee and can see that she's been into my drugs again even though we fought about it last night and she had even thrown the remote and busted my lip with it and no I didn't hit her even though she deserves it most of the time and is getting more and more violent every time she steals my drugs as if that makes any sense and it's probably the drugs so she fights with me because she likes the drugs and we fight because I am trying to keep her off the drugs then, which she then steals and snorts or smokes or mainlines and then fights with me over anyway. But now if she is apparently, to, apparently going to also beat off when she does my drugs so we can fight over her beating off when she does my drugs without asking now. <laughs> I finish grinding the beans which isn't funny anymore, and pour everything into a French press and then set the timer for a steep time of exactly three and a half minutes because this ensures the perfect cup in my experience. I've been trying to get clean, haven't touched the stuff in three weeks, but realize it doesn't matter now and probably never will matter. So I get my kit together and tie off and give what's left of my stash a whirl. The coffee is ready, so I stir it with my spoon, and it looks like the cup is eating my spoon, and I realize I don't want it anymore, and I don't want any of this anymore. I stand against the wall in the doorway to the living room and pull myself out of my pants and start jacking it furiously at her. Ready for the final fart. Yeah, sexy. Ready for the final fight. Should I... I'll repeat that. Start jacking it... Furiously in front of her, ready for the final fight, the final moment for everything between us to come crashing down, because, but I can't even get hard, and it is just me tugging at my flaccid noodle, Hillary sagging against my pillow on the couch asleep, and Jimmy Carter, Ch- Jimmy Connor, sorry, saying... <laughs> My parents are not psychiatrists. Um, And Jimmy Connor is saying that Nadal is always going to get to the balls that you think are winners, and that if Federer wants to win this match, he's going to have to play through every point as if it is if as if it is very is wow, am I drunk? He's going to have to play through every point as if it is is his very last one. got the Freudian slip um, reference with the Connor versus Carter. Um, okay. Uh, another governess and the least blacksmith 
I think that says it all about <laughs> Joanna. And, and it's back there. That's how to cover. I can't wait to hear your breathing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read um, a, a piece from the middle of the story um, called Snake, where two best friends are on a road trip through the desert um, because the, um, the the narrator is having a sort of dream sexual fantasy that's influenced by uh, like women's fiction and magazines and romance. And I'm just going to read this excerpt from it and then I'm going to read a little excerpt from my latest romance novel where I, I use an idea from the story because I, I sort of go back and forth between writing romance novels and writing more literary things. So... Anyway, this is from the story, uh, Snake. Listen to this, says Janie, and reads from the fashion magazine we found near a parking lot in Hot Springs. Are you a virgin or a whore? Neither, I say. It's not the quiz, says Janie. It's an article. I start falling asleep while she reads the article, but then I hit the rumble strip and wake up. Then I nod off again. When you go to bed with a man, you should wear natural scents like pine, rain, or grass. This will associate you in his mind with the out of doors, with the wilderness. You will seem inviolate to him, even as you assume various mind-blowing sexual positions. The man will think of waterfalls, otter ponds, beautiful places he's been and wants to take you. The man, he rolls over and looks into your eyes and says, there is a hawk nest in a red pine. He says, I know a secret beach. He drives you to the pearly coast at dawn and 27 humpback whales breach as the sun rises over the ocean. I don't remind men of nature. I bring a man to bed and he rolls over and looks into my eyes. He's like, I really want hot wings. Don't you have a craving for hot wings? Hot wings, I say. What, says Janie? I think I'm asleep, I say, and pull the car off the highway into the desert. Good night, Janie, I say. Good night, she says. We unclip our seatbelts and jiggle the levers. We lean into the car doors, settling. I dream that Janie and I are driving, but it's not Janie. It's my boyfriend. I put my head on my boyfriend's shoulder. His shoulder is so big, I think it must have the diameter of a pie, muscle pie, very firm. We listen to books on tape. We listen to War and Peace, and then we listen to Roots. My boyfriend has chestnut brown hair and is not a mouth breather. He has a cultural IQ and a houseboat. You will never skip meals, says my boyfriend. You will be full-sized and fertile and my bride. I will marry you, and we will have daughters, Quartilla and Lark. And Janie will have her own hammock on the houseboat, and she will babysit and bake tilapia. And we will explore the Panamanian wilderness in Tierra del Fuego, and I will find and justly compensate an indigenous priestess who will blend our pheromones into a potent tincture and we will drink the tincture. We will mix the tincture into my canteen with water purification tablets and hydration salts and with each sip we will find one another more forcefully, indelibly, physiologically attractive. Whenever I lay eyes on you, even 40 years from now, the blood vessels that nourish my scrotal sac and the shaft and head of my penis will constrict and the skin will tighten and the tissue will swell and I will throw you between my legs and pound you into the somber colored quarry stone patio behind our conjugal lake home and my member will slant at the exact angle necessary to press upon your urethral sponge and my member will press upon exactly that spot until we are drenched in countless liquid ounces of female ejaculate and even if you have died from the intensity of pleasure or its aftershocks I will use your deceased body in ultra erotic edge play until such time as the play is unhygienic and then I will follow you to the grave but first I will dig the grave with my heart on which I will retain hugely even in death as a monument to our eternal love I, 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 I fiddle with the 
I fiddle with the car radio because it's hard to listen to my boyfriend when I'm listening also to the moving words of Tolstoy and Alex Haley. And of course, I want to hear what my boyfriend is saying. I particularly want to hear the parts about his member. I imagine first that his member is a python in the jungle, a living vine wrapped all around me, filling and choking me at once. And then I imagine it in a somewhat stiffer, colder, and less pliable incarnation, the same somber color as the quarry stone. He looks almost like a coastline, my boyfriend, a silhouette. Um, his member like a lighthouse, signal extinguished, the sort of landmark a man would take me to, blindfolded, the saline wind making my hair wild and full, tearing at my bodice thing. So I had to get to that little part about the vine because... Um, <laughs> Because in this uh, historical romance novel that I just wrote called Passions Right, it takes place in Victorian London. Um, there's an epileptic runaway and a, a viscount with a tortured past. And um, they're, they're having sex for the first time. And, um, and one of the problems that you're, you, you find that you've come across in a historical romance novel often is that you're telling, you're in a close third person from the heroine's point of view and um, she's supposed to be experienced the sex scene but she wouldn't have the vocabulary to talk about what's happening and so you try to find a little trick where the term is introduced and then she can use it and so this I was wondering how I would do that and then I thought of that scene and so this is also coming right from the middle of something um, so she's he, they've been fooling around. Um, that's that's the, my Victorian English. They were fooling around, and um, and then she 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 touched his uh, member and it twitched. And she was like, oh, it twitched. Um, and then he then he wakes up. <laughs> his hair was tousled. His eyes heavy lidded but alert. Stubble darkened his jaw. The lazy smile on his lips made it start again, that beating between her legs. My dear Ella, he drawled, were you ravishing me as I slept? Her face had to be crimson, purple even, with embarrassment, but her curiosity was wetted. Why not satisfy it? She'd come too far to turn back. The remembrance of these hours she spent with him, she would cleave to it during the lonely years to come. It would be a balm and not a torment. I don't know, she said breathlessly. Were you asleep? His eyes glinted. No. She rolled onto her side, too, inching toward him, pushing her leg between his so that they fit together. And what, exactly, she whispered, constitutes a ravishment. She had one image in her head for a ravished man, a god, really. It came from the first poem she'd read that she hadn't wanted to discuss with her papa, The Vine, by Robert Herrick. The speaker dreamed his mortal part became a vine and wreathed all around his beloved, so that my Lucia seemed to me young Bacchus, ravished by his tree. She twined her leg around his, wound her arms around his neck. That depends on you. She heard the catch in his voice. His smile had faded. It twitched again, and she felt the movement high against her hip. Do you control it, she asked. Do I control what, he asked. <laughs> this. She worked her hand between their bodies and touched it, deliberately this time. Your mortal part. His eyebrows shot up. Mortal part? Uh, yes, of course. He cleared his throat. Mortal part. He couldn't suppress the low rumble of laughter. I've never heard that one. Your coinage? Herrick, she muttered. What do you call it then? She curled her thumb and forefinger around it and he gasped, as though being ravished. She smiled up at him, pleased with herself, watching his eyes darken. He wasn't laughing anymore. His voice was husky. Cock. She tightened her grip. <laughs> How do you make it stand? 
She slid her fingers down to the soft, heavy base, cupping it. The hot skin slid over the roundness within. He gritted his teeth. Inside every man's body, he rasped. There is a system of pulleys. (laughs) She giggled. And suddenly she was on her back. He was braced on his arms above her. What else do you want to know, he asked softly. His face was serious. She looked up into his eyes and saw the fierce emotion that burned there. Everything, she said. the only one who ever heard the system pulleys line (laughs) that that was awesome um thank you joanna (laughs) or should i say alessandra um so the next person up is eric sasson do you say sasson i say sasson yeah Yeah, it does say so much. He assured me that everyone would be utterly disturbed by the end of his... Not after what we've read. Okay, so... (laughs) Everything's relative, right? Um, His book, Margins of Tolerance, is going to be here. It unfortunately is not here yet, so we will take names for people who want to get the book as soon as it arrives from his publisher. Um, and he's got a novel coming out called Admissions, um, as well as Margins of Tolerance. He's here teaching for us from New York City, Eric Sasson. so great to be here um uh yeah the book is just the as you can see the cover is pretty relevant if you can see it from here for uh, an, uh a um oh sorry um it's uh it's so dirty that it couldn't be even sold here yet so um i'm gonna switch it up a little this is a bit of a serious story um so especially after hearing all this funny stuff so maybe a little bit change the mood a little bit so this is from a story called body and mind um, and I just want to set it up just a little bit. Um, um, Andy and Hunter are celebrating their four-year anniversary in Vegas. And like many gay couples, they're celebrating by uh, inviting a, a third guy from Grindr on uh, to celebrate <laughs> with them. Um, and um, I guess it pays to know that um, Andy is... Um, uh, um, they've had some trouble in the past. Andy cheated on Hunter. Um, that plays into the story a little bit and uh, I'm going to pick up the story from where Marcel who is the man they've invited from Griner uh, shows up to uh, the hotel room Marcel heads to the bed you guys play together often Hunter and Andy turn to each other sometimes Andy says sometimes Marcel repeats it's good to spice things up yeah Hunter says forcing a grin that's why I'm here Marcel claps his hands to spice things up. We're glad, Andy says. The TV is still on. Andy grabs the remote, considers turning it off, but instead lowers the volume. Judy Dench is promising to protect Kate from harm. Notes on a scandal is playing in the background. I don't know if you guys know that movie. Um, So you're an Oriental, Marcel says, nodding at Andy. 
He reclines on the bed with one hand twisted behind his back, the other lifting up the front of his T-shirt. The word quickly followed by the offered peak of Marcel's abs unsettles Andy. He takes both in and lets them simmer. Hunter laughs tensely. He's not a rug. Marcel shakes his head. Well, I can see that. He's as smooth as they come. I'm Filipino, Andy says. He sits down beside Marcel, the vacuous stare from the photo somehow more menacing in person. He wonders if Marcel's comment is meant to trouble him, excite him, or both. He's not sure why exactly, but the cloudier his thoughts get, the more his body longs to find out what's next. He takes Marcel's hand into his lap and starts drawing circles up the man's sinewy forearm and taut biceps. No one says oriental anymore. Hunter's voice is slow and low. He studies Andy's expression, searching for an accomplice to his offense. But I'm not offended, Andy thinks. I'm confused, Marcel says, looking first at Andy, then at Hunter. The Philippines are in Asia, right? Where are Filipinos from? Andy laughs. Marcel isn't confused. Andy looks at Hunter, nods at the empty space on the other side of the bed. Sit down, Hunter, he says. Hunter doesn't move. Andy lifts Marcel's shirt higher, revealing sleek muscles and creamy nipples, dusted with a few tufts of gossamer hair. Andy is aroused. He knows Hunter must be, too. Oriental refers to objects from Asia, Hunter shakes his head. The words sound labored, school marmish. People are Asian. Marcel smiles at Andy, revealing dimples. Dimples that make him look naive or stupid. Andy isn't sure which. He takes Andy's hand and puts it on his belt buckle. So are you Asian? Is that where you're from, Pumpkin? Hunter walks behind Andy. He reaches over and takes his boyfriend's hands off of Marcel and squeezes Andy's shoulders firmly, protectively. Andy looks up, irritated. It's not like Hunter to get worked up over silly comments. It's not like him to refuse to take a joke. He's from Queens, Hunter says. Filipinos are from Queens, Marcel's asked. Andy chuckles. Marcel's being an ass. Marcel pokes him playfully in the stomach and laughs, too. Still, Andy is certain they're not laughing at the same thing. Andy shoots Hunter a placating look. Relax, he says. I think my uncle is Filipino, Marcel says. He's a rabbi in Forest Hills. Andy reaches for Hunter's hand, which is wet and tight. He wants to ease his boyfriend back into the moment. What does it matter what Marcel says? Hunter's jaw is clenched. He's tapping his loose hand against his thigh. He's angry, and Marcel isn't picking up on the, on the cues. Or maybe he is. Maybe Marcel wants Hunter angry. Maybe Marcel wants Hunter to fuck his anger into him. Wait, he's Ashkenazi, though, Marcel says. Wouldn't Filipinos be Sephardic because of Spanish ancestry? I feel so dumb. Marcel bites his index finger. His eyes are too big for his face, innocent, dewy eyes that remind Andy of cartoon deer. But Marcel isn't innocent. Marcel has a swagger. Marcel lounges on their bed without being invited. He takes what he wants, says what he wants, in the manner of a gambler who's grown used to winning. Let him call me Oriental, Andy thinks. I want to be Oriental tonight. I wouldn't know, Andy puts his hand back on Marcel's crotch, looks up at Hunter and sighs a let's-get-on-with-this sigh. I'm not Jewish. Hunter's eyes tilt to Andy, then retreat. He's not from Asia. He wasn't born in the Philippines, so it's not accurate to say he's from there. He's from Queens, he says. This isn't necessary, Andy says. He looks at Marcel, whose smirk is more jovial than angry. Andy studies the smirk. He thinks he understands now. Marcel is playing a game, and Hunter is the prize. Marcel is jealous. He wonders how a man they just met could already be jealous. 
Right. So he's Oriental and from Queens, Marcel says. I get it now. Your use of the word Oriental is just plain stupid at this point, Hunter says. He cups his forehead with his right hand and rubs his temples. Andy wishes he was moved. He wants to be touched by the gallantry on Hunter's part, but he isn't, because Marcel is playing. And since Hunter has to know that, then maybe Hunter's playing too. Take off my shoes, Marcel says. He's staring at Hunter, but Andy knows he's the one being addressed. He doesn't need to be asked twice. He slides down the bed and lifts Marcel's right leg in the air, languidly slipping the man's loafer off of his foot. Marcel's sock is damp at the heel and toes. The soft, buttery scent of sweat fills the air. Andy shoves his face into the man's foot and inhales. He opens his eyes and looks at Hunter as he sucks on Marcel's toes. Hunter stands rigid, frozen in place. He looks like a wounded dog. No, not a dog, a wolf. A wounded wolf staring into the eyes of the giraffe it tried to attack and which had kicked it hard. Let me ask you, Hunter, Marcel says. He seems indifferent to Andy's kink, indifferent as a queen to the vassals performing her daily pedicure. Instead, he makes for Hunter's thigh just within reach of his left hand. Is Oriental only Chinese, Japanese, and Korean? The term Oriental is offensive to Asians. Hunter's voice is quavering. Still, Andy ignores him. He decides to to brave Marcel's other foot. He takes a sidelong glance, sees that Hunter is hard. All the Orientals I know don't seem to mind, Marcel says. But again, they're from Asia, not Queens. They do mind. They just don't tell you. Ask them. Marcel laughs. I don't speak Oriental, though. No, No need to continue this. Hunter walks towards the door. You should leave. Should I, Marcel says. Really? You want me to leave? No, Andy says. Please stay, mister. Me so horny. Me love you long time. Marcel laughs. Hunter turns white as an envelope. Jesus Christ, Andy, he says. He wants me to stay, Marcel says, a meaty vein in his neck, pulsating as he stares at Hunter. Do you want me to stay? This isn't going to work, Hunter says, throwing up his hands. Why not, Andy asks. Hunter is getting furious, and now he's going to call it off because of what? Their dignity? And he doesn't need someone protecting his dignity. He thinks about Hunter's laugh earlier, the look on his face when Marcel looked in. This strange look of disorientation, but also of regret. Like Hunter had forgotten the events of a magical day, and seeing Marcel had reminded him, brought back this rush of memories. Andy, can I please talk to you alone, Hunter says. Andy doesn't move. He can't remember the last time he was this turned on. He sees that Hunter is turned on despite himself, and he imagines Marcel is turning himself on, too. They're on the threshold of one spectacular fuck, one mind-blowing fuck, that will sear into their memory and erase months of bad sex. And he could turn around. He could waver and negotiate with Hunter, but he senses deeply that this is not what Hunter wants, to pseudo-save him from this asshole, who may be a real asshole, who was more likely just playing one. Instead, he unbuckles Marcel's belt. He rips open the button fly, tugs Marcel's pants off of his legs, and pulls on the elastic band of his boxers. Marcel is large, punishingly hard, and yet quivering, almost shy, now that he's naked. Are you happy? Marcel looks up at Hunter with eerie surprise, his smirk practically hostile. Are you getting what you want? And then Andy knows. He's not sure exactly how he knows if it's the catastrophic chill in Hunter's eyes directed at Marcel or the spastic flaring of his nostrils or if it's Marcel who tells him everything, Marcel whose dear eyes are suddenly not so cartoonish after all. 
Andy proceeds to deep-throat him. He watches Marcel's mouth droop in shock, his eyes clouding, not with pleasure, not exactly shame. Andy stares into those eyes as his head babs back and forth and thinks of the white sheets artists place over their canvases to delay the moment of surprise. Marcel's eyes are a white sheet, and Hunter and his dithering another white sheet, and Andy has lifted too soon. The work wasn't ready, apparently. They needed more time. And once he knows he can't stop, he won't stop, he's going to oblige, perform his part spectacularly. He gets up from the bed, strips down naked before them. He sees his reflection in the mirror beside the television, his soft, smooth brown skin, his small nipples, his frail arms. Not a man's body, a boy's body. A body meant to submit. Andy, please, Hunter says. Andy shushes him. Get undressed, Hunter. He asks Hunter to pass him a condom. When he insists, Hunter doesn't refuse. Andy reaches for the lube from the nightstand, squirts a few drops, and massages it into his hands. He lubricates himself from behind and throws the condom onto Marcel's stomach. Marcel stares at the packet and looks across at Hunter. Hunter nods, and Marcel opens it, quickly ripping the foil with his teeth. He slides it over his cock. Andy straddles him. The heavy murmur of their breaths is interrupted by the murderous screams from the TV, audible despite the low volume. Kate Blanchett is finally tearing into Judy Dench, finally accusing her of all that's coming to her. He rides Marcel and thinks of how long it's been since he's ridden Hunter. He thinks of Stephen Connolly and his devilish chivalry, his infernal magnetism, and how tough it is, even after several anniversaries, for someone to resist the cruelty of beauty. He rides. Marcel is pounding back, unforgiving. Andy closes his eyes and imagines floods and fires, supernovas, fading, dying beautifully. When he opens them, Hunter has taken off his pants. He masturbates right by Marcel's face, slapping his cock against Marcel's cheeks in a way that makes Andy laugh whenever Hunter does it to him, a laugh that Andy knows irritates Hunter. He wonders if Hunter is as happy as he is now. He wonders if he's making Hunter happy, finally. He wants to see Hunter's beyond Hunter's facade and make the inside of Hunter happy, the part that must hate him, the part that will not forgive. But there's no point in thinking of happiness or forgiveness. There's no point in understanding because now there's only this moment, this final act, this searing, mind-bending, scorching, and insanely pleasurable moment, hotter than ever before, absurdly hot, inhumanly hot. They switch positions. Everyone fucks. Everyone's fucked. And when Andy asks both of them to penetrate him, penetrate him at the same time, they do. And when he asks Marcel and Hunter to call him a chink, a gook, a dog-eating faggot, they supply even more adjectives. They coin new phrases. They can't settle for less now. This is the only way it can be. Once everyone is spent, Annie lies between Hunter and Marcel, who have both turned away from him to face opposite walls. He stares up at the ceiling and listens to the thrum of their breaths, feeling the weight of the silence. Soon they all shift. It's not possible to remain on a bed after a moment like this, not possible to bask in a pleasure so brittle and fleeting. Marcel heads to the bathroom. Hunter searches for the remote. Notes on a scandal is long over. Now it's sleepless in Seattle. Hunter and Andy hate sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> Andy sits up and stares into Hunter's eyes. He stares hard, like staring might provide insight, like staring might express his feelings. He thinks back to the first time they had sex after his confession. Hunter had entered him raw, right on the living room floor, and when he yelped, Hunter had covered his mouth, told him to shut up and take it. He doesn't know why these images consume him. Perhaps Hunter understands him this better than he does. Perhaps he has, really has provided the perfect anniversary present. 
These thoughts echo in his brain, even above the din of his anger and disgust. When Marcel comes out of the bathroom, he slips into his jeans and shirt and adjusts his hat. That was quite an adventure, boys, he says. Hunter looks away and Andy attempts a smile. Neither, say, neither says a word. I'd like to say I wish you both the best. Marcel claps his hands, but I don't. His eyes fixate on hunger, Hunter. His lips tremble, then open to release a croaking, jittery laugh. You're perfect for each other, he says, no longer to attempting to disguise his sarcasm. He tips his hat and heads out the door. Hunter gets up. He grabs the cheese doodles and shoves a few into his mouth before resealing the bag and putting it on the dresser. He washes the mess down with some vodka. Sit down, Andy says, but Hunter doesn't. He paces the room, rearranging tourist brochures on the desk. Andy knows the conver- knows conversation won't settle him, but conversation isn't optional now. Please sit down, Andy says, and this time Hunter stops and sits on the far side of the bed. How long have you been seeing him, Andy asks. He slides closer, reaches for Hunter's hand. He's the one who should need comforting, but instead, this Hunter on the verge of tears, Hunter about to collapse into a ball of yarn, unraveling, unraveling. It's Hunter's world that's been shattered. I didn't think he'd be so cruel, Hunter says. He pulls down on the lid of his, lids of his eyes, his defeat complete. Do you love him, Andy asks. Hunter's lips tremble. I love you, he says, but Andy is unmoved. It sounds more like a justification than a statement. Yes, Andy says. That wasn't the question, he thinks. I won't see him again, Hunter says. I think he loves you, Andy says, despite everything. I don't give a shit, Hunter's face is a blubbery mess. Andy wonders whether he should cry too. He wonders if he can. How could you? Why did you let him say those things to you? Andy sighs. Was Hunter serious? You say those things to me. You call me bitch, humiliate me. I wanted you to do those things to me. It's not the same. No, Andy says. Maybe not. So what are you leaving me now, Hunter asks. If you did this, Andy says, haven't you already left? You left first, Hunter grinds his teeth, his face darkening, his eyes penetrating and sober. You cheated first. I know, Andy tries to hold Hunter's gaze. You said you forgave me, and since then I've asked for one thing. But you can't ask, you don't get to ask. Hunter stands up, he grabs the remote from the bed and throws it across the room. Andy watches the batteries spill out and bounce on the carpet. He follows Hunter's pace with with his eyes, wanting to understand his anger, wondering if he should share in it or just accommodate it. But it's too brief. In a few seconds, Hunter is sitting beside beside him. He cups Andy's cheeks, his eyes feral and desperate. Listen, I don't love him. I swear to God, I don't. He pushes Hunter away. I asked for one thing. I know, Hunter begins to whimper. I'm sorry. But it was good, wasn't it? It was really good. It's over, Andy says. He turns away, walks into the bathroom. He's still naked. Hunter's phone rests on the vanity. He picks it up, opens grinders, notices several messages pending. He sighs, puts the phone down, and stares at himself in the mirror, at the vessel containing him. A needy vessel, greedy and possessive. He wonders if he'll really leave Hunter. He wonders if, in, the new, in, a few, if, if, in a few hours from now, while he's asleep, Hunter will stir him awake and beg him for forgiveness. And when he refuses, when he insists that he hates Hunter and wishes him dead, perhaps then Hunter will stop crying. Perhaps Hunter will stop listening and take him by force, and then suddenly the lust will return to haunt them again, 
that fierce primordial lust, that all-consuming fire which will scorch them, swallow them, remind them that they are alive. Thank you. Don't let the internet in. Just don't. Don't. All right. So um, next up, Laura Pritchett. Her book's back there. Right right at us. Thank you. Um, I was going to read from Stars Go Blue, maybe, because it's about two people who wish they had a sex life but don't. And that's one part of writing a sex scene. Um, But I'm going to read instead from a... Actually, it's my favorite... It's one of my favorite short stories I've written. We all have favorites, maybe, whether they deserve it or not. But um, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to read tonight was something that uh, is actually kind of tender and sweet and a love story, which to me was harder to write. It's easier to write about people in conflict, right? Um, it's hard to write a happy story because there's no plot. Uh, or the, it's, it's hard to pull off a plot. So um, I gave myself the task of writing somebody who was actually falling in love and to do it well. And I, I think it's one of the harder things I've had to do. Um, so it came out in the Sun Magazine, which is one of my favorite magazines. I encourage people to get a subscription. And then it was anthologized a couple places. And it's called Under the Apple Tree. And the apple tree is, of course important if you've read your Bible. I'm just going to read a bit of it. When Joe left me sitting under the apple tree and started to walk across the meadow towards my trailer, he looked back and waved and then walked on, and then he did a complete circle with his arms out like he was embracing the world. That made me laugh because he was so happy and so willing to show it. I was leaning back against the tree with most of my clothes back on, and I blew him kisses as he went on his spinning, cheerful way. Then he reached my dirt driveway, which is where he'd left his truck, and he climbed in, honked honked his horn, and left. We just made love, and we'd both come twice, and my body was still feeling, er, and my body was feeling full and tired. The contrails from the flying sparks of orgasm were just starting to fade as I picked twigs out of my hair and wiped a smudge of dirt from my forearm and let my mind think think things like, the only thing grand enough for a human life is to love and this is where the wild and gentle get sewn together. The sort of thoughts that make perfect sense at a time like that and only at a time like that. I considered the fallen red apples and the yellowed leaves and I guessed that I was in love that in fact I was more in love than I'd ever been. And I simply took notice of that feeling and concentrated on the sharp, rotting smell of the apples and the slant of sunlight on my bare feet and the ache of my thighs. After some time, I walked to my trailer, spinning around myself, and went inside and fell on my bed and closed my eyes and replayed the whole thing, our love-making and my orgasms and his and our mumblings, and then my mind wandered on to less romantic things, such as perhaps my rear end is not attractive from behind because it's dimpled with fat, which is too bad because I like that position, and perhaps I had said a stupid thing or two, which is also too bad but entirely predictable. I brushed away bits of earth still smashed against my spine and rubbed my head where it hit the apple tree, and I considered the violence of love. 
Joe and I have the exact same hair color, a brown so dark that it's almost black, only his is curly and mine hangs straight to my waist. Also, both of us have gray in our hair, Joe near his temples and mine throughout. I love it when he takes my hair and starts to braid it, which he knows how to do from braiding harnesses. And I love pushing my hands through his hair and feeling his soft scalp. Thinking of our hands in each other's hair, I made myself come again because I was curious to know whether I could accomplish three, which is something I'd never done before. When my body stopped pulsing, I decided that orgasm is the greatest physical pleasure in life, and I wondered if Joe felt the same. I wondered how he saw the world, through what lens. I imagined I was Joe. I tried to be in his tall body, looking at himself in the mirror, touching his own stubbled jaw, seeing his graying hair and brown eyes. I imagined how he might stare down his fears and hopes and hurts. I tried to feel his breath move in and out. I tried to imagine how he might close his eyes and become aware of his body and perhaps be aroused, feel alert and alive. Doing this made my heart hurt a little. Joe was a good man, and for some reason his goodness made me feel raw. I found myself thinking, don't trust him, he will hurt you. But I turned those thoughts off, and I kept them off. Instead of tempering my feelings for Joe with those judgments that the brain continually makes, instead of balancing love with Joe lacks such and such a quality thoughts, all those strategies that the mind uses so that it loves less and therefore feels less. Instead of doing those things, I stared at the ceiling of the room with my hand between my legs, and I felt Joe, and I knew Joe, and I experienced Joe as much as I could at that moment in time, despite the very real danger. And then just a little bit uh, in advance. Um, they part for a while, and they come back together, um, and they've seen a bear clawing at the apple tree that they've been making love under. When he was done talking about the bear, I talked about women and sex, since that was what was on my mind. I told him that the reason that women can have more than one... Um, sorry. That the reason that women can come more than once is that after orgasm, a woman doesn't return to an unaroused state, but rather to a pre-orgasmic level of arousal. Though I'd been aware of female orgasmic capacity before I'd known him, I'd been unable to have more than one. I said this was probably good for his male ego, but that wasn't why I was telling him. I had my own selfish reasons in the interest in the topic. I told him that these orgasms made me feel strong and that they also smoothed over all the hurt in my life. I told him that I had recently decided that a good orgasm took some concentration, some imagination, and a little spark of craziness. They also relied heavily on the feeling of safety and generosity. Joe sat there, head propped on his hand, the other touching my body. I said, do you have to be somewhere? Do you have to, do you need to go? No, he said. I don't believe you, I said. Then I added, the more orgasms a woman has, the stronger they become. The more she has, the more they, she can have. He seemed curious in the best way, willing to listen without expectation or judgment. I said, I think you should just know all this. He said, I think you, I should too. Then he leaned over to kiss my nose, and we made love again. And the only time I spoke was to whisper that I wanted him to feel good too, and that he, and that he needed only to tell me what to do. Then I listened as hard as I could with my body. He was on top of me this time, and when he crumpled down on me and buried his head into my shoulder, I wrapped my arms around him, and I traced his back. Oh, you're not next. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> See, I am needed. 
Yeah. Um, there's two more. So final two. Um, next up is a fellow Las Crucian. Is that what we say about ourselves, Las Crucian? Las Crucian. Um, Mario Acevedo, who's going to be reading to us. And um, thank you, Laura. That was lovely. So Mario's up, and then you're final, so I won't even introduce you. Hello. Thank you, uh, Andrea. Um, and I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. Uh, and um, this is the first time I met Steve Almond, so I like to think of myself as the discount version of Steve Almond, okay? <laughs> so if you leave here. Uh, the other thing I need to mention is that, uh, kind of on the side, there's, uh, there's also an art show concurrent with LitFest. So if you go through the mansion, you're going to see a lot of artwork. And then my friend Eric Matalski, who's uh, from Epic Brewery, he curated that show. And a lot of that artwork is on sale. And is, most of it has a literary theme. You're going to join. Not a literary erotic theme, just a literary theme. Uh, I'm going to have to say, too, Steve, when I get home, I'm going to Google uh, clitoris inserted into a, ma- into a, a male urethra. Okay? So that's my... Uh, the line there. Um, what what happened was is that uh, uh, Laura uh, Lori Lamson, uh, who writes the Narite series, was going to do one on uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And they go, "We want something about sex with an alien." And Mario, you came to mind. So, <clears throat> so my uh, my uh, essay in in this uh, uh, collection is called "Love Between the Species." Go, love between humans is complicated enough. Now try to sex it up between humans and non-humans. To start with, you've got two types of non-humans. In column A, you have the type that look like us, more or less. Vampires, angels, demons, Vulcans, Cleons. Basically two arms, two legs, one set of private bits connected in a very human-looking arrangement. You wouldn't have trouble shopping for them at the Gap or L.L. Bean. Imagine sex with one of these creatures and you wouldn't go, you, gross. In fact, what guy wouldn't want to score an elf chick? And what non-human dude wouldn't want to hit it up with the human babes? It's even in the scripture. The book of Genesis tells of Nelephon, a.k.a. giants or angels, looking down upon the daughters of men and finding them fair. Going my way, sweetheart. Column B is a lot more diverse and problematic. Here you've got all kinds of critters. Insect aliens, unicorns, dragons, blobs, zombies. Those zombies are undead humans, and you'd think they'd be considered in column A. The whole rotting parts and junk becoming detached in mid-copulation <laughs> implies a huge gross-out factor. The dumpster smell does little for the romantic ambiance. Not only does sex with anything from column B conjure dis- disturbing and disgusting images, it might even be illegal in some states. One way around the bestiality implications is to depict a sensual rather than a sexual experience, melding of the minds. After all, we're told by psychotherapists that the brain is the largest erogenous zone. For you, maybe. (laughs) Or some uh, inner mind hanky-panky avoids the grinding of body parts in a particular icky fashion. For example, a male astronaut falls into a vat filled with female alien goo. It becomes love at first splash. She's all like, OMG, you so understand me. He's all like, oh baby, you're so hot. Literally, the vat is 110 degrees Fahrenheit. He he flails in the tank. She splashes. He flails some more. She splashes. And the next thing you know, he can't help but cuddle in the afterglow. And because she's liquid, there's no arguing over who sleeps in the wet spot. Romance might be a little easier because more, it's more about how your lovebirds feel about one another on an emotional level where the thrust, as it were, is not about thrusting, but love. Writing fiction is all about emotional manipulation. Peters want, I mean, readers want the vicarious experience. 
Don't let them down. Give them, give the readers what they all want, what they feel for. Make your readers cry, laugh, feel the angst, the anticipation, the the heat of desire, triumph, loss, regret, shame. It's all about the plumbing. If it's all about the plumbing, your narrative will read like a chart about the human anatomy. Okay, there's his Audi, her any yawn. But don't let me discourage you from exploring graphic human alien erotica. Picture this scenario. A female starship captain is marooned with a brainy professor squid. She has needs. He has needs. They have chemistry. She's curious and horny. Same for him. Plus, he has numerous appendages. They're both consenting adults. Write that story. You may, ju- you may just pan the next mommy porn mega bestseller. I'll even give you the best line. She moaned, oh, baby, you touch me in so many different ways. <laughs> metaphor uh so i'm gonna um just really uh from these little erotic books that are back there i'm just cherry picking uh scenes that are just the sex scenes although really most of them are just sex scenes uh so this is one we're talking a little bit before about different kinds of sexuality and sexual impulses this is from a story called see you down there and it's basically uh, kind of an orgy with two super macho bodybuilders uh, and they're two girls, one Betty and the other Veronica. Those are the names they've given them. Uh, and they're now, these two guys are with, uh, with Betty. I did, as I was told, this was Rankin's show. It was his body we all wanted that summer, not the thing itself, but the quality of assurance it granted him. Or maybe it was more complicated than that. I was sort of mixed up. I could see myself moving into Betty, the sweet curve of her backside dividing and rejoining. She made all the lovely noises she made. And then Rankin was on his knees facing me with Betty between us. He was leaning back against the headboard. Betty was trying to fit him into her mouth. And there was a moment, just a moment, when our eyes met again, Rankin's and mine, and we leaned forward slowly, both of us smirking at our good fortune and examining one another's muscles as we did constantly when we couldn't find a mirror as if the other were really just a pleasing reflection of ourselves. Rankin's face got larger and larger, and then our foreheads came together with a dull smack, and we closed our eyes. We dropped our hands to our sides, and though Betty was between us, though our cocks were safely tucked inside her, we both knew at that very instant that she was only a bridge connecting us. Okay. Maybe funny, too. We were the ones in love, however it is that men love, that yearning for the final boundary, that gushing blend of envy and terror. We weren't that way for long, a few seconds maybe with our hearts in a silent uproar, our lips so close, our mouths, our tongues. I can't remember which one of us pulled away from the other. We were too excited about what was happening and too ashamed of our excitement. And a little later on, we took all that out on Betty, going a little further than we should have with that poor drunk girl beyond her want, which is when Veronica appeared and said, party's over, guys. Um, this is from a story called Slippy for President. Slippy is kind of a dorky guy who's wound up just by pure happenstance. Uh, he's like maybe a sophomore in college, and he's uh, in a house because he was on the housing list, and they lost one of the roommates. And he winds up in this house with three like unapproachably beautiful blonde women who are always sexually harassing him. Um, 
and they take ecstasy. It's fiction. <laughs> Slippy doesn't want to hear about our goddamn periods, Dana said. He wants to hear, hear us talk about sex. That's not true, I said dishonestly. <laughs> Cock-sucking, Julie said. Pro or con? Pro, Liza said. Pro, pro, pro. It depends, Dana said. Some of these guys, they've got no clue on etiquette. They're pushing your head down. Then they tell you they don't know. Then they tell you they. I'm sorry. Then they don't tell you when they're going to come, Julie said. Oh, sorry, Dana said in the voice of a frat boy. I didn't realize all that stuff was going to come out of my penis. That's never really happened before. Can I take a picture of your chin? Yeah. Okay, Liza said. Point taken. I want to make clear that despite my incredibly good repu- uh, imitation of a frat boy, that was actually a woman saying that. Okay. Yeah, okay, Liza said, point taken. How should men behave? I said, grateful, Julie said. Extremely grateful, Dana said. And let the girl decide to go on you. Don't beg. Don't guilt trip. Don't talk about your fucking dangerous sperm surplus. The whole turn on for us is the chance to have a little control. How does it feel for guys, I said, to ha- uh, how does it feel for you guys, I said, to have to do that, I mean. Go suck on a banana, Dana said. Then imagine the banana can move on its own and that you can't let your teeth touch it, even if you have some paw on your neck, forcing you to take bigger and bigger bites. And the banana has size issues, Julie said. And a weird rash, Dana said. Liza made a thoughtful noise. Yeah, but there's something sweet about it, too. Men are so proud of their cocks. It's like their secret ugly treasure. And you get to see it up close with its shiny little helmet all eager with blood. That part is a turn on. Liza pulled my head close so as to whisper, I love sucking on balls, too. I know it's a little kooky, but they're so lonely in that little sack. It's like you're doing charity work down there. Okay. I promised filth, and I am going to supply that. Um, Just a couple more little scenelets here. Claudia showed up in a black dress and blue eyeshadow. Her voice was a bit exuberant. She gulped at her wine and let the hem of her dress ride up her legs, which looked polished. We didn't have much to say. We were just waiting around for the alcohol to spring our bodies. We'd moved to the couch where we leaned and leaned and finally fell against one another sloppily. I slid my chin down her belly. She was almost delicate, but when her knees slipped behind my head, they clamped me so hard my bottom row of teeth bit into the underside of my tongue. I could taste my own blood, and this mixed with the slightly acrid taste of her. Gradually, her legs sagged to the bed. Her pelvis vaulted into the air. I followed her up, pressed harder, and suddenly there was a warm liquid coming out of her, a great gout of something sheeting across my cheeks, down my chin, splashing onto the comforter. I figured at first she had urinated, but there was simply too much fluid coming out of her. By the time Claudia had regained her wits and lowered herself to the bed, the puddle on my comforter was two feet across. Are you okay? I said. Yeah, it's pretty hot dialogue. You're welcome. Claudia nodded bashfully and stumbled to the bathroom. So Claudia is a lifeguard. You should know that. My second thought was that as a lifeguard, 
pool water had somehow accumulated inside her and been released when her internal muscles relaxed. But the liquid was as tasteless and odorless as rain. And you know what? I was goddamn thrilled. It was such a freakish thing she'd done, Claudia, this quiet little mermaid with her spectacles and her lisp, with her dull brown eyes, who never so much as touched herself, so far as I could tell. She had not only surrendered her body to me, but expelled, spumed, ejaculated some mysterious orgasmic juice all over my face. I felt like doing a victory lap around the puddle. Okay. Last one, okay? Uh, It's from a story called The Nasty Kind Always Are. The sun was gone now. The purple smog of dusk was upon them. This was a summer evening in L.A., just the way they drew it up all those years ago. A breeze rolled in and the streetlights came lit. The thought of the city beyond his hotel room exhausted Slade. The knotted freeways, the vast, flat valleys of porn, the hot distance of everything from everything else. Gretchen sat on the love seat facing the flat screen TV. She was on drink three now to Slade's four. Her gestures were becoming expansive, her story unspooling. She had spent some years in Germany dating a series of glamorous Jews. She had hoped to write a book with one of them, but he'd gone back to his wife, so she returned to the States and took up with a born-again Christian who would not have sex with her. How long were you together, Slade asked. Four years, she said. Have you ever read the book of Revelations? It's like Dungeons and Dragons for retarded priests. (laughs) She turned and glared at Slade with a sudden glassy intensity. The wind tossed strands of hair across her face, and Slade thought unpleasantly of his daughter and the expression she had come to assume in his presence, which went beyond disapproval into some harder category of truth. He didn't want his daughter here in this room with all the things they were about to do. The liquor had done this, opened certain portals of distress. It was the risk one took. Gretchen's eyes slipped from his, then she stood and unzipped her skirt and showed him what he'd been waiting for. And now let's just fucking see it. They all trimmed themselves down today like adult movie stars. In his youth, anything more than a little pruning at the edges was considered suspect. The female sex remained even in nakedness, something veiled. Now the coarse tickling hairs, the glorious funky muff itself had been erased, shaved or waxed or singed off with chemicals, leaving a kind of glistening origami. The exposure embarrassed Slade. He wanted to be gallant, to offer it a coat. (laughs) But down he went to do his level best. The drink had left him a little dizzy. She tasted of spit and pineapple lotion, the sweet bacterial tang of a well-soaped ass. He had ceased trying to divine the mysterious geography of a woman. There were spots that felt good, warm, fleshy knobs, sudden pockets of air. He had no idea. (laughs) Gretchen made a noise that was half pleasure, half impatience. Then it was his turn, and she moved down his body, nipping at his belly. Oh, the woeful bloat of those flavorless airport calories. He would die fat and unhappy and confused like Elvis. I'm sorry. It's not my fault that Elvis died that way. Gretchen ran ran her tongue in a circle like she was making a rune. She began to nibble at him, then took a giant pasta slurp. He felt like a machine whose essential part had gone floppy. 
But Gretchen had her own stake in the matter. She got up to fetch her purse and applied some kind of emollient to her hands. Coconut butter, she said. Try to relax. But the coconut combined with the pineapple and the bourbon to produce an aroma Slade could only think of as spring break vomit. She took hold of him and continued her exertions. She licked him just below the tip where the skin gathered in a tender smudge. Then, without warning, she pressed something inside him. Slade let out a yelp. It was a lovely, vicious ambush. Relax, she said, or this is going to hurt. He wanted to tell her to stop. There's only like six more pages. It's very short. He wanted to tell her to stop, but before he could, he felt an eager convulsion. He let out, I'm sorry, she let out a vengeful snort and pressed at the spot again. And every time she did, Slade, Slade felt his face twisting into infantile configurations, his mouth rooting for a latch. Then she was doing the same thing, thrusting her mouth onto him as she thrust into him, and he did relax, and the pain dissolved into a tropical mist, a holy veil, and all seemed right with the world, his job, his life, his fractured little family, and this lovely girl Gretchen, whoever she was, with her cruel bangs fallen across her eyes, and the summer night as it spread across L.A., out across the ocean of everything right, everything hopeful, forgiven, ecstatic, forever, and the soft, wet mouth, which as he opened his eyes, opened to receive him until the joy was an affliction, and he felt his body sweetly broken, surrendered, taken up by God. Thanks. Okay, you guys, two things really fast. Number one, as a devotee of the space break and chapter break, I have to say you guys are heroic for all of our readers tonight. Thank you for going there. Um, so, so thank you all. Thanks the, to the readers and enjoy. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.